Hello everyone, welcome back to my podcast, Happy Hour with Victabulous. It is, you guessed it, Friday. Only this time it is Friday, the Friday of 4th of July weekend. So I hope you guys have something fun but safe at the same time planned. And because I heard it's going to be pretty hot. So hopefully you guys are doing something fun outdoors, enjoying the weather, but keeping your distance from each other. And yeah, so uh, today's review and discussion is going to be on Love, Simon. And I've wanted to review and discuss this movie for a really long time. It's become one of my favorites. It's got Jennifer Garner, Josh Duhamel. It has also Nick Robinson who plays Simon. And if you're not too familiar with him, he is also in... The Jurassic World movie and he's done quite a few other ones too I'm not too familiar with but those are the two notable ones that he's in that I know of this one and the Jurassic World um, movie and then it's also got Katherine Langford she was also in Knives Out that I did uh, review and discussed uh, weeks ago and she's also in 13 Reasons Why or just 13 Reasons I don't know why I keep messing up that title she's in yeah 13 reasons why I knew I was right I knew I was right I never doubted myself anyways so yeah it's a really really good movie if you guys haven't seen it please go see it put it on your uh, to-do list this weekend if you have a extra long weekend like I do I'm off today so I get a bit of a three-day actually I think four-day weekend I think I have day off too so that's pretty awesome so yeah you know just put that movie on when you're chilling you know, relaxing at the end of the day, after you've done all your outside activities, just to wind down. It's really, really good. It can be a bit of a, a tearjerker. I, I cried. I mean, you can just call it because how it is because I'm a mom and I feel like <laughs> once you become a mom, whether you, you know, give birth, adopt, foster, you feel like you have that that not gene but you just have that motherly you know sense of emotion or you could just be the oldest of like 17 siblings like I am I'm over exaggerating obviously but I'm kind of not anyways it's just really it's a really good movie it's very sentimental it hits the spot emotionally and it's puts you in that mindset to where you don't want to be the parents without giving too much away before I get into reviewing and discussing but you'll see what I mean about feeling bad for him but also feeling bad for the parents because obviously if you don't know what this movie is about basically it's about this guy who is in high school he has a secret which ends up being that he's gay but he doesn't know how to go about coming about it he starts this like kind of like online pen pal kind of messaging back and forth with this guy that he met online who's in a similar situation as him and they kind of you know lean on each other and talk about their their you know troubles of trying to hide who they are and then when it gets to that point where he you know his parents find out I mean it's just 
it's just it's just a good movie and when it gets to that scene or that moment in the movie where every like where his parents especially find out it's just so important and so emotional and raw because you can only imagine that feeling that he has coming out to his parents of all people after hiding something like this for so long and them not having no clue so let's I'm not going to get into it much into it because I want to, you know, kind of save that feedback and commenting for when we get to that scene. So anyways, uh, tonight's beverage is fuel or tonight's episode, might I add, is fueled by a mojito. I've never had one at home, like homemade before. I've had one out. It's very strong. I think it also depends on like the how much garnish you put in it too that gives it that flavor. But yeah. That's what I'm drinking tonight. So I hope you guys are able to relax, enjoy this podcast, and have a drink, put your feet up, and enjoy this movie discussion and review. Oh, and on kind of like a spontaneous note, I decided this week when I was um, preparing for this episode uh, release that since it's 4th of July... I'm going to do a kind of double feature of review and discussion of not just Love, Simon, but in representation of 4th of July, I'm going to do review and discussion of Independence Day. I can't think of a better movie to do this for in honor of Independence Day. Or, yeah, 4th of July. So, stay tuned because that will be right after this episode. Alright, let's get started. Okay, so the film starts with Simon Spear, played by Nick Robinson, as he tells us about himself. His parents are former quarterback Jack, played by Josh Duhamel, and Victorian Emily, played by Jennifer Garner. His younger sister, Nora Talitha Bateman, I'm not sure who she is and what she's been in, uh, but you're more than welcome to look it up. She is an aspiring chef. And Simon spends his time with his three best friends, Leah, played by Katherine Langford, Nick, and Abby. He considers himself fairly normal other than his one huge-ass secret. He's gay. Uh, But before he heads to school, Simon sees a man he finds attractive working with a leaf blower. And he tries to talk to him, but ends up being completely awkward. Uh, So to, you know, go into a little bit more in depth of this scene... So this guy across the street, he's, you know, has a leaf blower. He's, uh, Simon's trying to talk to him and the guy's having obviously a hard time hearing him because not only does he have the leaf blower going, but I think he has like headphones on. I can't, I'm pretty sure he has headphones on. And so he sees Simon like talking in his direction, but he still has the leaf blower going. And then like Simon's just trying to like break the ice or say something and he ends up saying that oh I like your boots you know and then he just immediately regrets that and is just like kind of waves them off and leaves to go pick up his friends from school um so yeah he goes and picks up his friends from school after that awkward encounter uh the only openly gay student at school is Ethan who is picked on by the school's resident jackass Aaron and Spencer. I'm sorry, Jack Asses. 
Aaron and Spencer. Uh, their principal, Mr. Worth, always tries to relate to his students and always swipes students' phones for texting. Uh, Simon and Abby are performing in the school's production of Cabaret, and their teacher, Miss Albright, is frequently fed up with her students' lack of actual talent. Uh, at home, Simon is watching TV with his family uh, when Jack makes an unfortunate joke about a guy on The Bachelor looking fruity. Later, Simon gets a FaceTime call from Leah, who tells him about the school's blog where an anonymous student going by Blue has come out as gay. And so Simon decides to start emailing Blue under the alias of Jax, as in Jack's a dit or Jackie's a dit. I don't know. It's French for Simon Says. So if I'm saying that wrong, I completely apologize. And you're more than welcome to comment on my Instagram, Twitter, or send me an email and correct me. But please do it in a nice way because I mean well. Thank you. Anyways, Blue responds to Simon and the two continue sending each other messages and forming a strong connection. Uh, Simon is at the school library where he accidentally leaves his emails open and they are found by his classmate, Martin, who has a reputation for being extremely weird and annoying. Martin then um, approaches Simon and reveals he took screenshots of his emails and is effectively blackmailing Simon to set him up with Abby, which is a fucking dick move. So he can be added to that list of assholes in the school, along with who's, who, what are their names? What are they? Jackass is Aaron and Spencer and Martin. You can add him to the asshole list as well. Because that's just what a that's just a huge and pathetic form of desperation, but I guess we've all been there at some point, I guess. I don't know if we any of us have stooped to that low, but desperate times call for desperate measures, I I'm assuming. I don't know. Anyways, Simon is upset but also isn't ready for everyone to know he's gay, so he reluctantly goes along with it. Then at lunch, Simon's friend Bram invites everyone to his house for a Halloween party, and Simon starts to suspect that Bram could be blue, based on their interactions and hints dropped in the emails. So Simon and his friends meet up at his house, where he and Leah are dressed up as John Lennon and Yoko Ono. Nick is Cristiano Ronaldo, and Abby is Wonder Woman. He invites Martin to the um, to just meet up with his friends. And on their way to the party, Martin ends up trying way too hard to talk to Abby. And she's clearly more interested in Nick. Um, at the party, Nick tells Simon he's thinking of asking Abby out. But comes up with a lie that Abby is seeing an older college guy. And then Simon is invited by Bram to play beer pong and gets Martin and Abby to play against them. Simon later goes upstairs to find Bram making out with another girl, unfortunately to Simon's disappointment. Uh, to make things worse, Martin blows chunks on Simon after getting too drunk. So Martin is just a hot mess. He's trying way too hard. He's like coming at Abby way too hard and it's only pushing her more towards Nick, who she's already has this, these feelings for, and vice versa for him. And unfortunately, because Simon is being blackmailed, he can't help his two best friends out. So yeah. Anyways, Leah walks Simon back home as he wears her cardigan. Uh, they go to his room where Leah talks about loving one person 
for the rest of her life, meaning Simon himself, um, but he doesn't get it and instead just goes to bed and she sleeps on the floor. So if Simon's life wasn't already complicated enough, this just like quadrupled, like it just quadrupled the complications in his life, which poor Simon, because he still hasn't, he's not ready to tell anybody and especially his friends. So he's in a bit of a pickle, which I know is an underestimation, underestimate, but it's true. All right. So the next day, Martin urges Simon to move faster with Abby or else the emails get leaked. This guy is just becoming more and more of a douche by the second. So Simon gets Abby and Martin to go with him to rehearse lines for the play at a Waffle House. Martin tries to engage in conversation with Abby, who is anything but interested, obviously. He prods her for information regarding her moves to Georgia from DC, which she ultimately admits it attributed to her parents' divorce and her father being a cheating jerk. Um, meanwhile, Simon becomes attracted to their waiter, Lyle, who Simon now believes could be blue. Martin then tries to get Abby to say her name and say she deserves a goddamn superhero. Martin goes as far as to get the attention of everyone in the restaurant until Abby says it, which she does, so sh he'll shut up. Again. Duh. Uh, Simon walks outside as Lyle is sending a message on his phone. They chat briefly until Lyle goes back inside, and Simon gets a message from Blue, who is planning to come out to his father. Uh, Simon later takes Abby home and comes out to her. She says she's not surprised, even though she never suspected it, but she still loves Simon. Which is what friends do. Martin starts hanging around Simon and his friends, but is closest to Abby, whether she likes it or not. This guy can clearly not take a hint. Uh, this bothers Nick, who still wants to ask Abby out. Simon tells him that Leah has a crush on him and that she he should ask her out instead which that doesn't seem like the best idea but i understand simon is backed up to a wall right now so he's trying to divert nick and abby but it's just it's not gonna work anyways the students go to their homecoming game simon sees lyle and chats with him but learns that he's straight and interested in abby as Simon walks away, he's approached by Martin, who's the school mascot. Of course he is. Anyways, he asks Simon if he should make a romantic gesture for Abby, to which an apathetic Simon responds, Go big or go home. Oh lord, Simon, you're not helping. So Martin uses this as an opportunity to pull a Kanye and interrupt the national anthem so that he can ask Abby out in front of the entire school. Embarrassed, she gently tells him that she's just not into him like that. Martin walks away humiliated. Well, you asked for it, dude. Um, over Christmas break, Simon tries to call Martin to see if he's okay. Leah then calls Simon to tell him to go on the confession blog. Martin, trying to throw attention away from his homecoming debacle, ultimately posts Simon's emails outing him. God, what a freaking... I want to punch Martin in the freaking throat. Not even in the face. In the throat. Because he's such a douche. I mean, he's obviously... He likes Abby. But that's no reason 
to blackmail someone into doing what you want. It never ends well for you because either way it doesn't because if you end up black actually going through with the blackmail that person that you like manipulating and sabotaged into helping you you lost him like what else does he have to lose because you basically just exposed whatever you know the secrets that they didn't want you to you know expose and two you look like a complete douche because you did that and everybody's gonna know you did it and you know you're not that kind of person so why would you do that over a girl it's high school like get over it it's not the end of the world there is plenty of fish out in the sea anyways done with that rant so Martin outs Simon Nora sees the post and asks Simon but he coldly turns her away uh, Simon goes absent from his friends during the break and he comes out to his parents on Christmas okay so this is like I mean this was the big tear trigger for me because there was like some sentiment sentimental moments here and there throughout the movie leading up to this part the scene but nothing as strong as this because it's a child and their parents and this is just something so huge that unfortunately people are still having to face every single day or you know hide in fear because from their parents because they're just not sure how they're gonna react and yeah you know some most I'd like to think majority of you know those parents are gonna be understanding to their kids you know um, sexuality preference you know and 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 are gonna be understanding and open and accepting to it but at the same time there have been those moments or those situations where a child has come out to a parent or parents and they don't take it well you know they could be the coolest parents in the world the most chillest and so that's what gives the child the confidence to be like okay you know they love me they say they love me no matter what they said they'll always have my back they're super chill they support you know the the LGBTQ community but then when they or their own child comes out to them, it's like all of that trust and that confidence goes away because those parents, those supportive parents don't, aren't supportive anymore. So I could completely understand why it's so hard for someone to come out of all, to of all people, their parents. And I really feel for everybody, you know, just on a serious note. It's not something that should be taken lightly. It's a very serious conversation. And if you're not ready to have that conversation, don't, you know, and just know that there are thousands, millions of supporters out there that will support you and love you and have your back. But I can only imagine how heartbreaking it is to, of all people, to not have your back and support you you know being your parent uh, is your parents but yeah so 
let's get back to it. Um, he comes out to his parents on Christmas, and they appear okay with it. But Jack, his dad, I'm only assuming because he's just nervous and he doesn't know what to say, he makes another bad joke. And he and Simon then don't speak for a while. But And then to make matters worse, Simon speaks to Blue one more time, and Blue chooses not to continue sending messages. So Simon's kind of like falling apart here. This guy that he was messaging, this person Blue, you know, he had a real connection with, and now all of a sudden he's going away. And he really doesn't have nobody to talk to because he's, you know, he's been exposed, you know, he's been outed and he wasn't ready. And yeah, it's just got to be heavy for a person to be going through that. So it just sucks. So he's not sending, Blue's not sending any messages anymore. Simon then spots his friends on the street. And he tries to go to talk to them, but Nick and Abby are mad at him for making up lies to keep them apart. Uh, to which Simon admits what, what what he did was, you know, what was going on with Martin. And he apologizes, but they leave. Um, Leah also admits to Simon that she was in love with him and would have been fine with him being gay. But she is still mad about the lying. Which is completely understandable. You know, it's it's understandable on both sides, at least to me. Um, upon returning to school after break, the other students all gawk at Simon after what happened. He approaches a student from his drama class, Cal, who Simon thought may have been blue, but Cal denies it. During lunch, Simon sits alone with Aaron and Spencer and call out him and Ethan and mock them in front of the cafeteria. Miss Albright steps in and amazingly shuts the two bullies down and sends them to the principal's office. Simon and Ethan are forced to go as well so the boys can apologize to him, to them. Uh, Simon talks to Ethan, who says that although he is open and confident about his homosexuality, it isn't at all easy for him, and his mother still pretends for the rest of his family that he is straight. No, you don't do that. Afterwards, Simon is going home when he is approached by Martin, who is very apologetic, but Simon tells him to fuck off, which, good for you, Simon tell him to fuck off as many times as you want uh so simon talks to his mom who has no problem with him being gay and says that he should be free to be he should be free to be himself and he later talks to his dad who apologizes for all the times he's made dumb jokes and he lets simon know how much he loves him so there this scene in particular just going to take a another moment to talk about this this scene is just so powerful because when him and his dad do finally talk and his dad apologizes you can see the guilt already that his dad has from those you know stupid you know unintentional jokes that he made um you know in the past but then it's like oh, i'm not trying not to cry or get emotional um but seeing his dad and the actor did a really really good job Josh Duhamel, Duhamel um did a really really good job with this scene in particular because it's just so emotional 
and he feels, you know, not only does he feel bad about the jokes that he made, but the dad feels guilty because he didn't know. Like, he felt bad because he should have known something was up with his son or that, you know, he just felt like he should have known because you're the dad, you're the parent, you're supposed to know your child, you're supposed to know when there's something going on in their life and and, and address it, you know, and, and be there for them immediately, which I feel like that is the best response for any parent, you know, unfortunately, don't want you to feel guilty, but that's what part of being a parent is. You feel guilty because your son or your child is hurt, whether it's, you know, them struggling to come out or, you know, them hurting themselves in a physical way. You know, you're the, you're the protector. The parents are the protector of their, their child or children. And to find out that this has been a secret for quite some time and it's just gone under or over their heads for so long that they didn't suspect anything or see, you know, the signs or whatever. It's, it's just a lot for the parent too. And it's funny because I was watching this movie with my best friend and my husband and I was just completely bawling in this scene during the scene. And I turned to my husband, I pointed at him and I told him, I was like, if our son, you know, does this, if this happens with our son, you, this is how you better react or, you know, and of course, you know, my husband is, you know, absolutely. But I get like that in move with movies when it's like a really emotional moment or, you know, sentimental moment between either, uh, a, friends or a couple or you know a father and son mother and son just whatever just any kind of, like moment ex like in uh, emotional exchange in a scene of a movie I always look at Victor or I'll look at my best friend or I'll look at my sisters whoever is with me and be like you better act like this if this happens or something like that but yeah and I don't mean it like I don't think that my husband's not going to react that way but I just caught up in my emotions and crying and uh, I haven't, I was never such a crier during movies, you know, every now and then a movie would come along that bring me to tears. Now I feel like every other movie does and that's what motherhood does to you. It opens up this whole new world or whole new, you know, like set or I don't even know how to say it, it just opens up this whole new undiscovered emotional side to you that you didn't know was there you know because my best friend used to call me she would refer to me as Vulcan from Star Trek because they don't have emotion they don't really express emotion nothing and she's the one who has expresses her emotions all the time especially in movies always she's always like a slob kebab you know a blubber She's just crying, needs tissues on tissues on tissues. And then there's me just kind of like, yeah, it was sad, but like not that sad. And now I'm, it, I think it's refreshing to everybody to see like, oh, yeah, she can cry. I cry way too much. More than I'd like to, but I can't help it. But this movie was, yeah, made me cry. So, and especially during this scene. So if you haven't seen it, go see it.
so that way we can share that scene, emotional scene together. Anyways, so after Simon's dad, you know, apologizes and lets Simon know how much he loves him, Simon then helps Jack come up with a good slideshow for his and Emily's 20th anniversary. Uh, Simon then finds Leah walking her dog on the street and he apologizes to her for lying and admits that he has fallen in love with Blue. She forgives him and asks to know more about Blue. Uh, Simon then decides to post a confession to the blog where he accepts himself and also apologizes to those that he hurt. Just about all of his classmates and teachers read it and he adds an invitation for Blue to find him somewhere after the school's play. The students at school now have a greater respect for Simon, as they should. The school puts on its production for Cabaret, which goes mostly well until the T on the sign breaks. After the show, Simon's friends, including Nick and Abby, who forgive him and are now dating, invite him to go with them to the carnival. Simon takes his entire stash of tickets and uses it to ride the Ferris wheel in case Blue shows up. All of his friends and classmates stand by to see if he will arrive, and after a while, it appears hopeless. Um, but Martin shows up and tries to make it up to Simon. Oh, this kid, I swear. I mean, there just has to be one in every movie. Um, first, he pretends he was blue. Oh my god, you're an idiot. But admits that it's not true, and he gives the ride operator a few extra bucks to keep it going. It's nice and sweet, but still not enough. So this scene is kind of like um, never been kissed to where she announces after, you know, it's exposed that she's um, a news reporter, you know, works for a newspaper and not really a high school student. And she invites her teacher that she's in love with to meet her on the, um, the pitcher's mound to, you know, give her her first real kiss. So I feel like this 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 scene when he's on the Ferris wheel and everyone is kind of there watching and waiting, you know, hoping that he shows up. That this is what the scene reminds me of, of of Never Been Kissed that one scene. Um if you haven't seen that movie, go freaking watch it. Anyways, um so shortly after Martin gives the right operator a few bucks to keep going, Blue finally arrives, and it turns out to be Bram. Simon realizes who he is, and Bram admits that he, what he saw at the party was a drunk moment that ended quickly. And when they reach the top, Simon and Bram kiss, and everyone cheers. Uh, later on, Simon picks up his friends from school, now including Bram, as they have begun dating, and as they ride to school, Simon notes that it's a beautiful day and they should go on an adventure, to which his friends agree. So I don't know about you, but I'm really glad that it ended up being Bram because I think out of all the people that he suspected to be blue, he really wanted it to be Bram. And you could just show, you could just not show, God, Victoria, learn how to talk. You can just see the connection that they have. You know, right from the very beginning. Yeah, it's like brief and, and, and not too in-depth. But, I mean, it's enough to where it's like you wanted it to be Bram as well. I mean, yeah, the other the other 
couple of guys that he suspected it to be blue, you kind of knew it was like, no, he, it's not blue. He doesn't seem like, you know, a blue. Not that he doesn't seem like they would be gay. Don't mix up my words, people. But you could just tell, like, that's that's not, like, no. It's, you're still holding out for Bram, for it to be Bram. So, uh, yeah, this is Love, Simon. And I don't know if any of you have noticed, even if you haven't even, if you know, if you know of the movie Love, Simon, but haven't watched it yet, but there is a TV show or a Hulu series, I believe, uh, kind of spinoff, but it's Love, Victor. And it's the same promise of Love, Simon. I don't, I don't think there was any connection in the movie to this. I don't know how they're going to try to make a connection. I haven't started watching it, but if you have, if you have started watching it, let me know. Um, if it's any good, I, I was going to start watching it. There's just so many good shows out there. Damn it. Um, so I'm gonna try to check it out soon just to get an idea of what it is. If it's going to be something similar, it by based off the previews, it does seem a bit similar, obviously. Um, but not too much. We'll see. I'll have to check it out. But yeah, let me know what you guys think of this movie review and discussion of Love, Simon. I love the entire cast. I like, uh, I liked Jennifer Garner and Josh Duhamel um, as like a married couple, playing a married couple. And they just fit like as his parents. Like just, I'm so glad that they decided to give him like loving and understand understandable parents. Because I think it would have been a lot to, if one of his parents, if not both, were not, like, supportive or anything like that. But it was really good. It's very, like, relatable. I feel like that's the word. Yeah, so it's very relatable. And it's just such a good movie. And I think you guys should go and watch it. If I, and if you've already seen it, go watch it again. Because it's that good. So, yeah. Uh let me know what you guys thought. Uh, follow me again on Twitter, Instagram, and Spotify. And email me. Email me. Oh, God, I can't talk. Email me. Um, my Twitter is hhrvictabulous or at hhrvictabulous. Instagram is happy hour with victabulous, all one word. What else? Oh, my email. <laughs> my email is happyhourvictabulous at hotmail.com. So go follow me. Go comment. Let me know what you guys think. I hope you guys enjoyed this review and discussion. And yeah. Okay, everyone. So now for the double feature movie review and discussion for Independence Day in honor of 4th of July. So sit back and relax. And I hope you guys are going to enjoy this. A little special feature and in spirit or because it's 4th of July I decided to make me what I think is very you know 4th of July colored drink uh, it's called an adios motherfucker or if you want to abbreviate it an AMF so I just thought because I love the color I love those drinks I used to drink those when I was younger like they were nothing. 
and it's you know it's one of those drinks where it's it's just tastes so sweet and fruity and it doesn't taste like there's alcohol and then once you finish it then you're like oh yeah here it comes it's hitting me so and it's a very very pretty blue color so I decided to make this for myself for um, this episode so yeah this is Independence Day starring Will Smith and Bill Pullman and of course Jeff Goldblum how could we forget I think not so let's get into it on July 2nd a giant alien mothership over 340 miles in diameter enters orbit around Earth and deploys several dozen saucer-shaped destroyer spacecraft, each 15 miles across. Uh, the destroyers take positions over many of Earth's major cities, including New York, Washington, uh, D.C., Los Angeles, and Moscow. David Levinson, who's played by Jeff Goldblum, an MIT graduate working on satellites for a cable company in New York City, discovers a signal hidden satellite transmission, which he believes is a timer countdown to a coordinated attack by the aliens. And with the help of his ex-wife, Constance Spano, who's played by Margaret Collin, a White House staffer, David and his father, Julius, played by Judd um, Jed Hirsch gain entrance to the Oval Office to warn President Thomas J. Whitmore, played by Bill Pullman, of the impending attack. So the president immediately orders large-scale evacuations of the targeted U.S. cities, but the aliens attack with advanced directed in energy weapons before the evacuations can be completed. And the president, his young, young daughter, portions of his staff, Constance and Levinson's narrowly escape aboard Air Force One, as a destroyer lays waste to Washington, D.C., New York City, Los Angeles, and, and Los Angeles are both destroyed in the same manner, leaving millions dead. On July 3rd, the United States conducts a coordinated counterattack, the Black Knights, a squadron of Marine Corps, FA-18 Hornets from El Toro Marine Corps Air Station, and participate in an assault on the destroyer that was, has devastated the city of Los Angeles. Their weapons fall to penetrate, or fail, sorry, they fail to penetrate the craft's force field. And it responds by releasing scores of smaller attacker ships, which are similarly shielded and armed with high-energy torpedoes. One-sided dogfights ensue. Captain Stephen Hiller, played by Will Smith, manages to evade the guns of the attacker ships and lure a single attacker to the Grand Canyon. There, as his jet is about out of fuel and the attacker is about to overtake him, he deploys the landing chute for his jet and it drapes across the alien craft, temporarily disorienting the pilot. Um, so just to add a little bit to this, this scene, he's in El Toro. He has a girlfriend back in LA, I believe. Yes. He has a girlfriend who's played by Vivica, um, Vivica Fox, and he's asking for them, him or her, and her son to meet him down there when all of this starts to happen because she's clearly freaking out, as would anybody else when all of a sudden these giant ships start arriving in all these cities. 
And um, in this scene in particular, he, his friend slash, not co-pilot, another pilot who's his friend, um, played by, oh crap, who is it played by? Harry Connick Jr. That's who it is. Yes, Harry Connick Jr. He is um, unfortunately killed in this scene as well. He's starting to freak out. He's losing momentum. They're, he's not able to evade the ships, the smaller ships, um, what is it? the missiles or the like you know their attacks chasing him he's able to he's not able to evade their maneuvers and is quickly unfortunately destroyed his friend his um harry connor jr played a good part even though it was brief it was a good uh, he was hilarious um anyways so captain stephen hiller manages to evade the guns of the attacker ships and lures a single attacker to the grand canyon there, as his jet is about to run out of fuel, the attacker is about to overtake him. He deploys the landing chute for his jet, and it drapes across the alien craft, temporarily disorienting the pilot. Captain Hiller ejects from his jet, and the alien crashes onto, into the top of the canyon wall and lands in the desert. Uh, Captain Hiller parachutes to a landing close by and angrily marches over to find and confront whatever life form is in the alien craft. Uh, the door to the alien fighter craft pops open and a very bizarre looking creature with tentacles appears. Now this, when I first saw this movie, actually every time I see this movie, this scene like just irks me because of the tentacles and just how real and lifelike they look. It's just, ugh, it gives me the chills, and I'm not really easily disgusted or grossed out, but this, these aliens are just nasty. <laughs> they did a really good job of not making them, like, look likable. But yeah, they're just, oh, they're tentacles, I'm just like, and it's all just, they're just, it's fluttering around just that scene, I'm like, ugh! Yeah, anyways... So, uh, the door opens, the alien fighter craft pops open, and a very bizarre looking creature with tentacles appears. Captain Hiller delivers a right cross and knocks out the creature, and knocks the creature out, saying, welcome to Earth. He sits down and smokes a victory cigar, where he also notes that that's what he calls a close encounter. <laughs> Uh, you gotta love Will Smith's one-liners in this movie, because there are many. So, um, back on board Air Force One, President Whitmore consults his staff, who reports that NORAD has been destroyed by the invaders and the Vice President as well. Um, Whitmore's cabinet and the Joint Chief have all perished in the attack, arguing about how they should have issued an executive order to evacuate the major cities that were attacked. David's father suggests that the U.S. government did know about the invaders, having stored some evidence of a previous visit at Area 51 in the Nevada desert. So he's kind of going on rambling about how they already knew about this alien invasion from Area 51. The president is humored and tries to tell Levinson that Area 51 doesn't exist. However, Whitmore's defense secretary, Nimziki, played by James Rebhorn, tells the president that the installation does exist. Surprise, surprise, everybody. As Hiller is using his parachute to drag the body of the alien across the desert, he is picked up by Russell Cass, played by Randy Quaid. 
So Randy Quaid is just this other character in the movie who claims that he was abducted by these aliens and used and um, his, he was studied. They studied him before, you know, returning him back to Earth. He lives out of uh, a motorhome with his three kids and he's a crop duster. He's like known as like the town kook. Nobody really believes him. Everybody gives him shit. And when all of these ships start arriving in these, in, you know, to Earth, he immediately, you know, gathers up his kids and tells them, you know, drunkenly that they need to go. They need to head to, you know, um, he already seems to know, like, to head away, like, to the desert, away from the ships. So that's what he's doing. And that's how he comes across Will Smith's character. Um, along with a group of refugees and a convoy of RVs. From there, they take the captured alien to Area 51, commanded by Major Mitchell. Uh, Area 51 conceals a top-secret facility housing a repaired alien attacker ship and three dead alien bodies. The president arrives and is given a tour by Dr. Brackish Okun. Forgive me if I say that wrong. Uh, the head scientist, he's the head scientist at the facility. Okun tells the group that the alien's biochemistry is similar to our own and they can breathe our air. They don't seem to use sound to communicate. However, the Area 51 staff believes they communicate telepathically. Uh, attempts have been made, have been underway since the late 1960s to repair the attacker ship. And with the arrival of the mothership, the systems in the attacker have been reactivated. Um, when Okun removes an outer biochemical biomechanical suit from the alien Hiller captured, the living being inside is revealed. The creature regains consciousness and kills most of the examining crew, and because it has no vocal cords, it makes use of Dr. Okun's voice to communicate with, the, with President Whitmore, who is outside the glass windows of the lab. Its first words are, release me. Uh, President Whitmore poses a question to the alien, asking if the people of Earth and their invaders can live in peace, to which the creature says no peace. When the president asks the creature what it wants them to do, it responds, die. It uses its telepathic powers to invade the president's mind, which briefly incapacitates him. The military per personnel then shoot the alien through the glass, with Major Mitchell stepping through the broken glass and delivering a final headshot. Unfortunately, Dr. Okun is left in a coma, which I don't remember them really specifying that he was in a coma. I think this is made up. <laughs> because as far as you know, Do uh, Major Mitchell steps through, delivers the final shot in the head to the alien, and then goes over to Dr. Okun and tries to like check to see if he's alive, which clearly he is not because those tentacles were tightly wrapped around his throat. And then he was flung across the room when they started to shoot the alien. So, no. There's that correction on this discrepancy. He's not in a coma. Or maybe he is, and they that's just part of the Area 51 secret. He's alive. I don't know. Make what you want of this. Of, of that bit of news, or whatever. Your opinion. Whatever. I don't care. That's mine. Anyways, during the instant that the pre that President Whitmore was immobile, the thoughts of the alien and learned of their plan. 
They attack planets, kill off any indigenous life, use up their resources, then move on. Comparing them to locusts, he says, um, President Whitmore issues very clear orders to nuke the bastards. Uh, B-2 spirit bombers are deployed with the first destroyer targeted one that is hovering over a deserted Houston, Texas. The weapon explodes but proves ineffective at penetrating the, the craft's force field and destroys the city instead. As a result, the president orders the remaining bombers to be called back. So there's a, they've skipped a couple um, like scenes, like tidbits, like little small um, details in this movie. So before Captain Hiller, a.k.a. Will Smith, before he goes to... Um, El Toro base uh, or actually after he goes to El Toro base and he flies and he realizes like he's really anxious once he arrives at area 51 or whatever he's really anxious to get back to El Toro because if you don't if you recall in the beginning of the movie he tells his girlfriend to you know after her shift at work uh, to meet him at El Toro and stay with him there so he's anxious to get back, but then he's, you know, informed that it's his base has been completely destroyed. So he's, you know, completely distraught, thinking that his girlfriend and her son didn't make it. Uh, but, you know, there's only one way to find out. So he kind of hijacks a helicopter and goes, and lo and behold, she is there. She made it out of the city in time. Um, when it, before it was attacked and was able to, um, and she was able to, uh, bring rescue or like not rescue. She rescued, you know, survivors. One of those survivors being the president's wife, who was, I believe she was in LA or she was somewhere on that side of the city over there because she was doing her own, you know, she had work that she was doing, you know, politically or whatever, giving a speech. It doesn't really detail what she was doing, but she was there for work. And her helicopter got taken out by the explosions from the initial blast of Ak. So she, you know, rescued her and they bring her back to um, Area 51 where the wife is cared for. But unfortunately, her injuries are too, it's kind of too late. She's already, um... She has a lot of internal bleeding and they can't stop the bleeding, so unfortunately she's she passes away. Um, but yeah. And therefore I spoke too soon because the literally the next line says the first lady Marilyn Whitmore has been on a working trip to Los Angeles and like I said, got caught up in the destroyer attack there. And Captain Hiller's exotic dancer, I'm sorry, I forgot to mention she's an exotic dancer girlfriend, Jasmine, rescues her when she comes across wreckage of the helicopter the first that the First Lady had been attempting to escape in. Um, which also, you know, like I said, um, so she's back at the hospital at Area 51. They just informed the president that unfortunately her injuries are too, like she's, she's just too injured. Like she didn't get, you know, um, medical attention soon enough and she has too much internal bleeding so that they can't control. So, you know, the president has his last few minutes with her, um, 
where he claims he obviously lies to her and says that the doctors say you're going to be just fine. But of course she knows her husband and calls him a liar as she does frequently in the movie. Um, anyways, David Levinson is uh, found by his father. Uh, who's He's drunk and furiously making a mess in the hangar, yelling about how the nuclear attack over Houston will only add to the destruction of Earth. His father tries to comfort his son, telling him that he's been lax in his faith in Judaism since David's mother died. Uh, he tells David to get off the chilly floor so he won't catch a cold, which David then has an epiphany and wakes up, a text sleeping in the hangar. Uh, David has everyone gather in the hangar and demonstrates to the crowd how the attacker ship shields work. He then activates a program on his laptop that deactivates the ship's shield, making it effortless uh, for Major Mitchell to shoot a soda can he placed on it. Uh, David then suggests a plan that involves using the newly operable alien attacker to gain access to the interior of the alien mothership in space um, in order to introduce the com a computer virus that will disable the protective shields around the destroyers and attackers on Earth. Once the computer virus takes effect, the attackers and destroyers will be left vulnerable and a single nuclear weapon could be used to destroy the mothership. Uh, Hiller volunteers to pilot the attacker with Levinson accompanying him to upload the virus to the mothership. Before the mission, Hiller and Jasmine take a few minutes to get married with Dylan as their ring bearer and David and Connie as witnesses. Um, David and Connie reconnect during the service and hold hands. Um, you can clearly see that they still love each other even though they got divorced and uh, just a little side note too the reason why they got divorced was because they uh, David accused Connie of having an affair with the president which ended up not being true but David is I guess a bit paranoid. Um, so after the ceremony um, and with the satellite com uh, communications knocked out, the Americans must use Morse code to coordinate an attack with the remaining forces around the world, timed to occur when the invaders' shields are set to fail. Lacking enough military pilots to fly all available aircraft, the commanders call for volunteer pilots because at Area 51, all the, um, the RVs that... Um, Russell Case was kind of leading through the desert. They've all kind of, and you know, whatever survivors that have come across this base have all been staying there out around, I don't want to say the parking lot, but out around, all around Area 51. So they decide to, you know, call for volunteers who have any kind of fly, uh, fighter pilot um, experience. And those who step up include President Whitmore and Russell Case, who both have previous combat flight experience, like I said. Um, Hiller and Levinson reach the mothership and implant the virus. Um, however, President Whit and President Whitmore leads the American jet fighters against the alien destroyers. Okay, whoa, 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 whoa. Hold the fuck up. Okay, so after 
they have a plan. They develop the plan. David tells them that he can give the mothership a virus that can, you know, disarm all the smaller um, ships, you know, protective shield on Earth long enough for the fighter pilots to destroy and, you know, cause severe damage to the to the ships. The president gives probably like one of the best speeches ever in the history of speeches in movies. I'm not going to go and repeat it verbatim, but, you know, obviously everybody that's listening to this podcast has seen Independence Day. And if you have not, then you better because it's disrespectful and you need to. Um, so, yeah, he gives a really good speech, gets everybody all riled up. It's just one of those speeches where you're like not even in the movie and you're like pumped. You're like, yes, give me a I want to be a pilot. Let me get in a plane and shoot some alien ships down. So, yeah, that's how good of a speech it is. And I'm pretty sure they're going to probably be playing like a marathon of it this um, this weekend. So you'll have plenty of opportunities to watch it over and over and over again. All right. Anyways. So President Whitmore leads the American jet fighters against the alien destroyer approaching Area 51. And although the aliens now lack shields, the, squ- the squ- squadrons, squadrons, the squadron's supply of missiles is quickly exhausted against the colossal craft and its large complement of assault ships. The underside of the alien craft opens up as its directed energy weapon prepares to fire on the base. Uh, the president fires a missile at the cannon, but it connects and explodes with a protective, protective, pr- oh my god, Victoria, a protective hatch. And just as the squadron is informed that all their missiles have been fired, good old Russell Case radios in saying he has one final rocket. As he begins to launch it, his firing mechanism jams. And with not much time to try to figure out a different plan or try to fix it, he decides to pilot his aircraft into the alien weapon in a kamikaze attack. Uh, The explosion causes a chain reaction which annihilates the ship. Uh, Human resistance forces around the world use the same weak point to destroy the remainder of the alien ships. While still on the mothership, Hiller is unable to disconnect from a docking clamp. Knowing they need to still fire the nuke, the two smoke cigars and thank each other for their efforts. Uh, They then launch the nuke, which penetrates a nearby control center. Hiller's ship is suddenly free, and he furiously pilots it towards the portal they entered, narrowly escaping when the door is closed. Uh, The bomb explodes, instantly destroys. Hiller and Levinson are caught up in the shockwave and debris of the mothership's explosion, but are able to return to Earth unharmed. Uh, They crash, uh, which... But it does cause them to crash land the alien fighter in the desert close to Area 51. And when they emerge from the smoke and dust to join their awaiting friends, they're both smoking cigars. And they have this kind of, you know, this walk, this kind of swag in their walk. You know, like, I'm a badass. We just took out this huge alien ship. We saved the world. You're welcome. Um, And then the film ends as everyone watches debris from the mothership enter the atmosphere like shooting stars or like I like to 
it looked like um fireworks to me that's just that's just my opinion so that is the my you know review and discussion of independence day it's such a great film it's just one of the best out there there isn't anything really kind of like it i mean okay maybe i take it back but like armageddon but this is like independence day like it's leading up to independence day you know i don't know i just it's just really good yeah it's aliens yeah we can all think that they don't exist whatever it's a myth but still it's just such a good movie and it's got like so many powerhouse names like will smith and jeff goldblum like that's i mean that's all really unique everyone else does a great job in this movie and adds to the greatness of it but will smith oh my god like how can you not like this is <sighs> i'm really disappointed though that they decided to make a second one because it wasn't needed and yeah they brought back jeff goldblum and bill pullman who's the president you know president went more and then the the guy the main character is supposed to be will smith's kid dylan and then it's got um liam hemsworth in it i don't know it's just weird i didn't see it did you guys see it i didn't i wasn't you know doesn't have will smith and we didn't really need another aliens or not sorry not aliens but we didn't need another like well, no, I'm not sorry. We didn't need another alien attack. We didn't need another Independence Day. It was done right the first time. One and done. That's all you need. And I feel like a lot of movies, like original movies, do a good enough job. And then people got to get this idea that it needs a sequel. Not every single movie needs a, a franchise. It doesn't need to, you know, I know it's... Like, franchises are very popular, but it's not always needed, and it's not always necessary. Case in point, Independence Day. It's just fine. Leave it alone. Independence Day is just... It, it can hold its own. It doesn't need another one. It doesn't need a sequel or a prequel. It doesn't need anything. Just leave it the fuck alone. It's a classic. Let it be classic. Let it remain that. Don't ruin it or try to overshadow it with Independence Day 2. Like, that's it. Resurgence or whatever. What the hell is that? No. No. Stop. Just stop. You're ruining it. Like, it's cool that they brought back Jeff Goldblum and he was willing to be in the second one. That's probably going to be the only reason why I even give it, like, a try or anything. Just worth watching it with my eyes but yeah other than that no and yeah what is it? it has vivica a fox and apparently she stepped up from the entertainment business the adult entertainment business but like no well where's will smith i don't care what kind of storyline you make up if he does not come back in the movie there doesn't need to be a sequel i'm sorry no disrespect to bill pullman and jeff goldblum which i'm sure did a hell of a job trying to carry this movie but no 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 so um anyways now that that whole rant is over and i hope you enjoyed it and agreed with me because yeah that's what i have to say about that 
Um, but I just thought I'd take a, a moment to do something, to try something different. I was reading through um, kind of like trivia thing, um, information about the movie and kind of like, oh, did you know kind of things like behind the scenes kind of thing and goofs. And I just thought it'd be real fun to um, like add some like FYI's about this movie that you may not have known about, such as the scene in which Will Smith drags the unconscious alien across the desert. Um, it was filmed on the salt flats near Great Salt Lake in Utah. And Smith's line in the movie, in that scene where it says, where he says, and what the hell is that smell? That was completely unscripted. The Great Salt Lake is home to tiny crustaceans called brine shrimp. And when they die, the bodies sink to the bottom of the lake, which isn't very deep. And they, de and they decompose. And when the wind kicks up just right, the bottom mud is disturbed. And the smell of millions of decaying brine shrimp can be very, very bad. But apparently, nobody bothered to tell Will Smith this. So, yeah, I just thought that was like a, a fun fact about that scene. And another kind of FYI, um, there, the scene where the president's speech was filmed on August 6, 1995, which takes place in front of an old airplane hangar that, um, just that fun fact is that the old airplane hangar that that scene, his speech was filmed um, at, that once housed the Enola Gay which dropped the atomic bomb on Hiroshima exactly 50 years earlier on August 6th, 1945. So that's pretty crazy and it's, you know, a coincidence, obviously, but so yeah, there's that little info. And then of course, this fun fact um, about Jeff Goldblum, I feel like everybody kind of already, you know, recognized when you watch this movie. Um, he uses one of his lines from Jurassic Park in Independence Day in this film, the um, where he says, must go faster, must go faster, and is he delivers it in the same intensity. So when they're in the mothership out in outer space trying to, you know, send a virus to all the main ship and all the smaller ships down in Earth, and they're trying to escape back out before the they nuke that ship that's when he's saying it so I thought that was cool that he improvised a little bit and used that line because of course Jurassic Park is such a classic movie and that's such a classic line so to bring it back in another classic movie is awesome because sometimes using like reusing a line in another movie can maybe not have the same effect as it this one obviously did so yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. And then let's see. Um, in the briefing room scene at Area 51, behind Hiller and Gray, there is a night vision pan of the base. And what you're seeing are actual shots of the real Area 51 taken by a conspiracy theorist from a place called Freedom Ridge. And the ridge was commandeered by the U.S. government in the late 90s and is no longer accessible to the public. So... There's that fun little fact. And um, let's see, there's the huge hype that the film began generating in early 1996 caused Warner Brothers to postpone the release of Mars Attacks from 1996 
from summer to Christmas, and Steven Spielberg temporarily canceled his plans to direct War of the Worlds. So, just FYI, um, if you thought that, you know, 2005 reason on why it was released then, instead of back in 1996, or even start around that time, now you know. But that's kind of like a long temporary cancellation from like 1996 to 2005. But whatever. I mean, I'm sure it also worked CGI-wise. But anyways. Um, and then back on the Bonneville Salt Flats, uh, the cast and crew wearing that were wearing long pants, they still managed to get sunburns on their legs. Um, because the white salty surface reflected the sunlight up their pants. That's just, that just sucks. That completely sucks. Workers comp? I think so. Um, but yeah, so those are just some fun facts, a little history, uh, behind the scenes kind of information for you. If you didn't already know, now you know. And yeah, so hopefully you enjoyed that little bit of, um, FYI information. Um, and yeah, so let me know what you guys think. Go watch the movie again, because nobody, there shouldn't be anybody listening to the, this podcast who hasn't seen Independence Day. I mean, that's just ridiculous. So yeah, comment on my Twitter, Instagram, and follow me on Spotify and send me an email. Let me know what you think. All right. You guys, again, have a safe and happy 4th of July. Enjoy your weekend. Be safe. Wear sunscreen. I mean, I doubt the same thing's going to happen to you, but still, wear sunscreen. It's still going to get pretty warm. So, protect your skin. And I will see you guys. Well, not see you guys. I will talk to you guys at the next episode. Bye bye. <laughs>